Please pray with me. Yes, indeed, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning. And we'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So have you heard the good news this morning? We've already been singing about it. If you haven't heard the good news this morning, let me just share it with you right now. It's very simple. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God loves you. That's the good news this morning. I want you to hear that truth because in the midst of the trials, the struggles, the pressures of everyday life, it's a truth that sometimes is easy to doubt. Just sitting right where you are this morning, just sing with me that wonderful little Sunday school chorus, that wonderful little hymn, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes. Amen. That's a message that we all need to hear over and over and over. The great theologian Karl Barth, when asked to summarize the essence of all his many volumes of theology, simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Indeed, that God loves us immensely and is pursuing us to be in relationship with himself is the overarching message of the entire Bible And Romans 8, our text for these next three Sundays, shows us God's immense love for us and giving us his spirit. Now, why in the world would God want to give us his spirit? I mean, what's the point? Well, that's a good question. Before we jump into Romans 8 here, we need to go back to the very beginning in order to see the big picture of God's purpose in giving us the Holy Spirit. Redemptive history at least for we as human beings, begins in the Garden of Eden. You see, before Adam and Eve sinned, that they daily enjoyed God's presence. They walked and talked with God face to face and in person. They enjoyed God's acceptance and approval, and the fellowship they had with him was unbroken. That kind of fellowship, that kind of relationship with uh, that kind of relationship is what God desires for each one of us. But then, as you know, Adam and Eve rebelled and committed treason against God. They deliberately chose not to trust God and to reject his one word of warning to them. And so, as a consequence, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and out of God's presence. And so, sin separated God, or separated Adam and Eve from God, and ultimately, all of humanity as well was separated from God. Dr. Sandra Richter, professor of Old Testament at Asbury Seminary, says this. She says, The dimensions of human and divine habitation are separated. 
the great divorce, uh, this great divorce is the most grievous and profound aspect of the fall. And therefore, much of the process of redemptive history may be summarized in a single objective. Get Adam back in the garden. Get Adam back in the garden. And so since the time of Eden, God has been working in an ever-expanding way to get Adam back in the garden, so to speak. To restore the fellowship between God and and humankind, between God and, and you and I. The first concrete expression of this is the building of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says, And have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. You see, God's heart is with his people, and he longs to be present with them. And so for the first time since Eden, God returns to actually dwell with his people. But even though the the tabernacle indicated God's presence uh, with his people, access to God was still severely limited. You see, God's presence in the tabernacle was was in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was partitioned off from the place where the average worshiper was allowed to go. Uh, in fact, only the, uh, only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And at that, only one time of year on the Day of Atonement. And so with the tabernacle, God dwelled among his people. But the average person could never really approach his presence. But then Jesus came. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and lived among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Now do you hear John's intent here? He's telling us that, that God's presence has returned, but now his dwelling is among us in human flesh. The presence of God is with us in the person of Jesus. And this time anyone can approach him without fear. The deformed, the sick, the the wicked, the shamed, anyone. No veil stands between them and and the very presence of God. And instead of fearing death when they approach him, they can approach him and be healed. That in itself is very good news, isn't it? As John Donne said in his Divine Meditations, number 15, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more." God's pursuit of relationship with us reached a much more personal level. But again, there are only so many people that one Galilean man can interact with in three years of ministry in Judea. There are only so many who can hear the message, only so many who can be touched by his healing hand. And so the next stage of God's redemptive plan unfolds. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that the 120 disciples were all together when the Holy Spirit came down upon them in power, like a mighty rushing wind and with visible tongues of fire resting on each of them. Acts 2, 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this is really amazing when you really stop to think about that whole progression. I mean, think about it. For more than a thousand years, the typical worshiper, like you and I, 
couldn't come any closer than the outer courts of God's dwelling place. The deformed, the sick, the unclean, or the alien couldn't even come that close. But since Pentecost, the gift of God in Christ Jesus is that you and I and all who are in Christ Jesus have become the dwelling place of God. Wow. So all throughout human history, God has been working to get Adam back into the garden, so to speak. Since the time of the fall, God has been reaching out to us, pursuing us with his love and longing for restored relationship with us as his people. And now we come back to Romans 8. This chapter is all about God's grace in restoring us to right relationship with himself and enabling us to live in right relationship with him. It's all about life in the power of the Spirit. Now, in the previous chapters of Romans, Paul discusses the the sinfulness of all of humanity and the failure of the law to bring us into right relationship with God. The fact is, we can't earn our salvation, though many try to do that. No one is able in his or her own strength to be righteous, to please God, to earn his favor in any way by obeying the law. But God's grace given to us freely in Christ Jesus has made possible our salvation. We can't earn it. It's a free gift. In chapter 7, Paul discusses our inability to please God by obeying the law. Paul was likely talking about the law of Moses, but the principle here applies to all of us. We can never please God by obeying the rules. Because of sin, we aren't able to obey the law, whether the law of Moses or any other moral law. The law, Paul says, essentially does two things. First, it makes us aware of our sin and our inability to overcome it, and therefore aware of our need for a savior. And second... It gives sin an opportunity to seduce us. In other words, once we know that something is wrong, there's something within us that desires to do that very thing. Let me give you a silly little example of this. You could walk by the same tree every single day for years on end 